All righty. Uh, good to see you this morning. Kids are exiting. Uh, what a great song, all those songs. Um, you are the same God. Uh, that's a thought that the Lord impresses upon my heart and mind periodically more than others. I think I even said this recently here. Um, God can make all the promises He wants in the Word of God, but if He's going to change in a million years, they're not worth but about a million years' time. Uh, but He never changes. The theologians call that the immutability of God. He never changes. I'm telling you, everything is riding on that. Everything is riding on the immutability of God. So when He says something and makes a promise, it has to happen because He doesn't change. Praise the Lord for that. Tell you what, uh, would you grab this right here? Would you take that? That's in your handout this week. Uh, you might want to put your name on it. Uh, I was asked by someone, uh, implied, are, are we getting through all this today? Uh, because normally we do like one side and the back of another, and you'll notice there's six pages in this one. Uh, no, we're not doing it all today. Uh, so I'm kind of going to confess to you a few things. Uh, when we finish this message... Uh, it may not be where I think I'm going to make it to, and if I don't, that's fine. I'll stop where we need to this morning, and we're going to pick it up next week. So stick that in your Bible when you're finished, all right? So put your name on it, complete today, stick it in there, bring it back next week, and you'll have it. Uh, we will have a few more copies next week for those that may lose theirs or that were not here this week. Um, second thing to mention, as we've, most of you have been with us as we've been going through the book of Acts and we are now into chapter 6. So last week, we got up to the section, chapter 6, which I believe talks about deacons. And so while we're there, talking about deacons, we preached on that last week. We'll go to it again some more. This was a great time, I feel like, to break from our normal pattern of expositional preaching. It's going to be very different. I'll go ahead and tell you, today's not going to be a goosebump-style sermon. If you get goosebumps today in this sermon... It might be the Lord calling you to a certain office, right? It may be like, Lord, you know, you may need to make that decision or pursue that today. Uh, that happened for me when I was 12 years old. Uh, the Lord kind of made it clear what I was supposed to do is on a Sunday night and then the next few weeks following. So maybe that's, but for the most of you, it's not a goosebump, but it's an important message because while we're in this section on deacons and we're going to be coming up in chapter 11, this, uh, this other term of elders is just going to be introduced in the book of Acts. Let's go ahead and now spend some time this week and next talking about leadership within the church. So again, more disclaimers. So I'm already telling you when we finish, it's, it's not going to be like leading to, an, to a time of invitation and contemplation. We'll stop, we'll pray, we'll pick up next week. That's just the nature of it. But these thoughts are things that were in my mind and were becoming revealed to me over a period of probably 8 to 10 years that started maybe 15, 16 years ago. So 15, just through a series of circumstances, reading the Bible through, a particular study Bible that I was reading, I noted a few things there. But honestly, it was when I was teaching in a Christian school through the book of Acts, I kept noticing this, these, these patterns of leadership in the church. And I'll just tell you straight up, uh, I had been in five churches in my life at that point, two pre-college and three counting college and post-college, and none of them had the, the, the style of leadership in the church that we're going to study this morning. So I'm reading that, and I'm studying the book of Acts, and just, again, having my devotional time, and it's like, Man, there's something different 
that we should be doing, and, and how come I'm not hearing this? And so this week and next is a culmination of some of those thoughts and also stealing some information later after the fact from a couple of guys. You'll hear the name Dever, Mark Dever, and uh, uh, Alexander Strock. I have borrowed from them. We'll have a few quotes from them this week and next. Um, so we'll be going in that very different. The whole tone of the message is different. Praise the Lord. VBS uh, begins tonight. I think Brandon wanted the workers here at um, 5 o'clock. I think I picked that up. 5 o'clock uh, if you're a volunteer. This looks awesome. But I'm going uh, to discover who my uh, fellow... This, we'll get in the message in a second. Who are my fellow Disney people, and we do not endorse all that Disney stands for, but they have a fun theme park down in, in Florida. It's really fun. Does this remind you guys of anything? This little Z. What is, this may, I'm looking at that, and I'm like, I'm on the Buzz Lightyear ride. I should be trying to kill the evil Emperor Zerg with my little fake gun. How many of you know what in the world I'm talking about? Raise your hand. If you, yeah. That's a fun thing. You ought to do it sometime. But anyway, I'm looking. I'm like, that's, that's Zerg. And uh, so it made me want to ride Buzz Lightyear ride. But anyway, that has nothing to do with anything. All right. All right. You got your hand out. Start on page one. I'm going to put that down here. Actually, I'll put it in here. And then we'll be getting into the Word of God in just a moment. So here, let's begin at this point. Biblical church leadership. I hope what we're doing today does not bore you. I hope you don't lose interest. You really should care. If the Bible's going to cover this, and we're going to, Lord willing, back all of it up with Scripture, if the Bible's going to teach something and reiterate it, we need to know what it says, and then we need to know why do we do this? Why do we do this? What should we be tweaking and changing? How should we be adapting how we do our biblical church leadership? And it will really take both weeks to get uh, the full version of what we want to teach. I'm going to begin with a quote from Deborah. He writes the following. Quote, Christianity has always recognized the need for authority. Some people think they'll hear the word authority and immediately become suspicious and skeptical. It's not a bad concept. It's all through the word of God. He continues, Christianity has always recognized the need for authority in society, in the home, and also in the church. So I want to begin with where is the authority in the church. Where does it reside? And so I want to begin on the main thing. We're going right into the main place where the authority in the church resides. So if you would write it down, let's start here. We're not going to linger here long. Everything, though, builds off this first note, though it's not going to be the main thing we're teaching. We're just stating it. This is the clear thing. Everyone should agree with this. Your first opening thought. The Bible is clear that the final authority in the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to see it in a few minutes as we look in the book of Acts, chapter number 20. It's going to be referred to as the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. It's the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. That tells me, wait a minute, that was Jesus' blood. That bought, so it's his church and Jesus is God. A lot's going to come out of that little verse. But right out of the gate, the Bible is crystal clear that the final authority in the church and over the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just stated as a fact, but it's also brought out in some analogies and pictures in, in the New Testament. Watch. He is the head. Christ is the head. So if he's the head, we are the, we're the body. So 
Real simple, you guys have a body there. You have a body, and your head is in charge of your body. Your, your right foot doesn't just get to randomly start kicking the like, what in the world? Hey, the head is not going to tell it to do that. The head's in charge. I shouldn't have done that. The head is Jesus Christ. He's the authority over the church. We have another analogy, another one. We are married to Christ. We're the bride of Christ. He's the bridegroom. He's our authority according to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. But also, the, he calls himself, and if we get there, the last passage we're going to look at today is going to call Jesus the chief shepherd. He's the, he is the chief shepherd. So if he's the chief shepherd, we are the sheep. So write that down. He is calling the shots. Whatever Jesus says goes. Anything that tries to be an authority in society, in the home, or in the church that goes against what Jesus says is going against the authority. All other authorities flow from the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're just saying, from you came all things and to you are going all things. That's brought right out of Romans chapter 11. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's our final judge. All authority flows from him. So he is the head, the final authority of the church. So catch what I just said. Everything he says goes. How do we know what Jesus said? Here we have the Bible, the Word of God. Jesus is God. We have his word. We have his words and those that he taught through his Holy Spirit. So the Bible is our authority in the church. Jesus is the ultimate authority. We worship him. We do not worship the Bible. But since the Bible is his words, it is also our authority. And all other authority comes in underneath Christ and his word and his Holy Spirit within the church. So we're going to notice three things in your book, your little booklet. We're going to, Lord willing, get to the points of all three. But the third one is so in-depth and large, it's going to take about half of today's message and all of next week's. That third point is going to be a really long one, but we should get to it. Would you notice, number one, three thoughts about church leadership. Number one, Christ gives certain responsibilities to the congregation. So let's talk about what is the leadership, what is the biblical model of leadership within the church, and one of the things we want to notice is that Christ gives certain responsibilities to the congregation. Would you join me after you've written that, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, would you flip over there? I'm going to invite you, though the verses will be on the screen, you will have an advantage all morning, if you can follow along in your own copy of the Word of God. I'm going to kind of zero in on three or four things, three or four responsibilities that Christ has given to the church when we're talking about leadership within the church. Now we're notice what he's given to the congregation. Matthew chapter 18, look at verse 15. You may need to do this right now this morning. Who knows? I hope not, but it may be that you need to address this issue in your own life. Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus says the following. If your brother, meaning your spiritual brother, implying your brother or sister, if your brother sins against you, get angry at him. No. If they sin against you, go gossip about him. No. Stay bitter about him. Refuse to forget. No, it doesn't say that. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Hey, can we talk? Yeah. The other day you, you did this, and it, it really hurt me. I what? You did this. I am sorry. I'm sorry about that. Or I, I don't think I did that. Yeah, I heard that you said that. Who said I said that? 
they need to be over here. What, what did you say? that They think, I, what? Oh, well, I heard that. Oh, you heard. So you heard from them who heard from. No, I never said that. You work it out. But if you go, hey, the other day you did this and it, it really hurt me. Yeah, so what? Get over it. I'm in it. I'm glad it hurt. I'm like, what in the world? I tried. No, we're not done. Move on to verse 16. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three. Hey, would, would you join me? I'm not, I'm not going to coach you and get you on my side. But would you just join me? I need to meet with so-and-so about something that we've already kind of talking about. And it didn't go the way I wanted. Would you just join me, you and you? That way I have at least two of us or three of us. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, to you and the two or three, then tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen, to get it right, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We've actually had to do this since I've been here. We've actually had to get to this point. And one of the things we learned is in verse 17... If the person that has made it past the first and second phase actually gets to the third phase, if they'll come with you to the church, then the whole church would sit there and say, well, this is what happened, and that's what happened. Okay, then we'd have to sit there, and the church would have to decide, man, who's in the wrong? What's in the wrong? Let's get this together and work it out. But what's implied in verse 17 is if the person doesn't come with you, then it's, the issue is presented to the church, and then it says, if they don't listen even to the church, that means that the church apparently should be given time to they go reach out and try to woo and, and bring the person back and lead to repentance. So the church should be given a chance. You say, what if they still don't listen to the church? Middle of 17. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, you know what? You're acting like an unsaved person because you've sinned and you're not wanting to get it right. And it's leading to bitterness. And, and we got to have unity and, 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 and peace in our spirit, in our church. And so you're not pursuing that. And so we're going to have to remove you from us. And the Lord Jesus doubles down in verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you, meaning the church, you people of the church, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Here's what he's saying. Church, if you've gone through the process correctly and you're right with God and using the principles of the Scripture and this person just refuses, if you have to remove them from your congregation, then that will have already been approved in heaven. Or if you have to forbid or allow, whatever it is, it's already been forbidden and allowed in heaven. Heaven's backing you up as long as you do it along these lines. Leave that spot. Join me if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'm going to be flipping. I normally have just a few passages of Scripture. This morning I have too many to even mark, so I'll just be joining you myself. It'll take me a moment. 1 Corinthians 5. So we have certain things that are given to the congregation, certain responsibilities. Chapter 5, verse 1. You there? Here we go. Paul, in responding to some questions from the Corinthian church, and now he's responding also in writing to them about some reports that he's heard that are very disturbing. Verse 1, Corinthians, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Watch this. Here's a man. Here's his father. His father has a wife. And this man's having inappropriate relationship, sexual relationship with his father's wife. 
that has happened at this point. Paul has heard about it and the damage that it is doing. That's not things Christians should be doing, but this man is in the church. Watch verse 2. It gets worse. Not only has he done this, verse 2, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? In other words, I'm not sure who's arrogant. Apparently this person's like, I'm not getting it right. I'm not repenting. He must be like competing with his father for this woman. This is, this is horrible. Even unsaved people say, man, that's sick. That's wrong. And it's allowed to go on in the church. So Paul, in verse 2, says, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, how will that happen? Keep reading. Verse 3. Paul says, For though absent in body, I'm not there in Corinth. That's why I'm writing you a letter. Though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. In other words, Paul's like, I don't need to be there to tell you what needs to happen. Here's what needs to happen. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Hey, Corinthians, you need to, next time you're assembled together, this person needs to be kicked out. Would you write this down? How, what is the leadership? What is the leadership model in the church according to the New Testament? Well, first we need to notice that the whole church plays a role in church discipline. The whole church needs to play a role when it comes to church discipline. And unfortunately, again, as I've said, we've had to do that even in the time since I've been here. Would you leave 1 Corinthians 6? What else? Join me, if you would, Acts chapter 6. I know we were there last week. I want to reread the first three verses. Acts chapter 6. What are the responsibilities the Lord has given to the congregation? Acts chapter 6, verse number 1. Now, in these days, Luke is writing, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, man, the church was just growing, a complaint by the Hellenists, that's the Jews that were from the dispersion in other nations is where they lived, but then they come to Jerusalem and get saved. In those days, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, the native-born Jews. Why are they complaining? Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of money and food. They were being neglected. Our widows are being, and they're tired of it, and they're starting to complain. Verse 2, and the 12, meaning the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples. Let's get the Hellenists and the Hebrews together. Let's get the whole group together. The 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. We can't stop feeding eternal souls the spiritual word of God to go feed temporary physical bodies physical food. We can't do that. We would be wrong, but we have a solution, and it's verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you. Hey, church, pick out from among you seven men of good report, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. A second responsibility as far as leadership given to the church. Number one. All the church is responsible for church discipline when needed. But number two, we notice even though the apostles are the ones who actually appoint the deacons, the whole church is involved in nominating the deacons, nominated from the people, by the people. So as you're writing that, I want to challenge you to go quickly as soon as you've written that. Join me again over in Galatians. This one is extremely important. It's very important. I'm going to invite you to be doing it this week and next week and every week. We should be doing the following. Galatians chapter 1. After you've written that other note, join us in Galatians 1. 
Galatians chapter 1, verse number 1, Paul introduces himself, and he's writing a letter to some churches that he has already started years earlier, and now he's writing back to them. Verse 2, Galatians chapter 1, verse 2, and all the brothers who are with me, so Paul says, I'm writing this, and all the brothers who are with me, who are we writing to? To the churches of Galatia, churches, several churches in a region of modern-day Turkey called Galatia. Skip down to verse 6. This is key. Get your Bible. Ask the Lord. Lord, teach me this point. Help me to live up to this point. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, I am astonished. He's really angry. This is like one of the, maybe the only or one of only two, I forget which it is, where Paul writes a letter to a former church and he does not brag on them in any way. He doesn't brag on them. He's just like, I'm taking you to task. I have an issue with what's going on. What is the issue? Verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Did you catch what he's saying? So here's what happened. Paul starts a church. He preaches to them that the way to go to heaven is to put your faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross to save you from your sins and don't add anything else to it. He started these churches. People got saved, and then he left and and went to preach more of the gospel to other places. While he's gone, some other Jews came behind him and said, yeah, listen, Paul didn't tell you everything. If you want to really go to heaven and finalize your salvation, you got to keep the law, especially you men, you need to be circumcised. Well, these guys weren't circumcised. They were Gentiles of this day, and it's like you have to be circumcised if you're really going to go to heaven. Paul hears about this, and the people in the Galatian churches were all disturbed and starting to believe these other teachers. Verse 6, one more time. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Verse 8 is strong. Paul says, but even, hey Galatians, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. If anybody preach, I don't care if an angel comes and says something different than I told you the first time. If I come back and tell you something different I told you the first time, let me be a curse, let them be a curse. If any preacher, and as if it wasn't strong enough, he doubles down again in verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him die and go to hell. Let him be killed and die and go to hell. It would be, I don't want anybody to go to hell, but it would be better for the false teachers to go on to hell now rather than keep corrupting God's people and disturbing them. And that's the idea behind the word accursed. So what is God, what does Christ expect of the church? Here's what I'm gleaning from that. Paul's shocked. Hey, you Galatians, why did you allow false teaching? Why did you allow? Paul is rebuking them. Would you write this thought down? Paul calls for the whole congregation in churches to recognize and refute false teaching. Recognize it. Know the truth so well that when you hear, we're not talking about differences of opinion and different methods and a, a little different way of seeing something that is very controversial, not really clear in Scripture. We're talk, they were talking about salvation. Paul is like, do not allow that. Do not allow false teaching. Who's it up to? Congregation. It is on you. So hear me this morning as the one who teaches and preaches here primarily. It is your job, all of you, 
to make sure that me and whoever else stands here or is in your classes or your home groups or whatever's going on, that they never are allowed to teach false doctrine. Again, I'm not talking about like that's unclear and they got their take and man, there's a lot of people. We're talking about the true fundamentals of the faith. That's what we've got to teach and preach. And if you ever sense, man, that's not it. You need to come and question it like, hey, was that a misspeaking? Did you say that? Because my Bible says this. Don't ever allow me or anyone else to become or be allowed to have false teaching. I think this is the second, at least of today, and maybe the last one. I'm going to borrow from Mark Dever. He writes the following. So again, what does Christ expect of the congregation? Quote, Individuals should take an active part in their churches, not simply by a... This is a long sentence, by the way. Not that long. I'm going to interrupt it, though. Individuals should take an active part in their churches, not simply by attending, praying, and giving, comma, but... I'm going to interrupt it. Did you hear what he just wrote? Individuals should take an active, active part in their churches, not simply by attending, praying, and giving. I wonder how many pastors across America, if you were to interview them, say, hey, would you be happy... If all the people in your church that are members attended and gave and prayed, you know what most of them do? I'll take it. Yes. They're going to actually come and they're going to pray and they're going to support the ministry. Yeah, I'll take that. Dever's saying, that's nice. That's a good little start. That's the minimum. That's the minimum. Today we had a new members class. And we'll be going into this idea more and more. That's the minimum now to the whole Long quote is a long one. Quote, individuals should take an active part in their churches, not simply by attending, praying, and giving. Three great things. But by actively, say, what should I be doing? Getting to know the church family. You should be praying through the list of those other people with whom you have covenanted to serve God. You should listen as other members of the body tell about what is what God is doing in their lives or about their concerns. Like, really listen. He writes, and then pray with them. You must realize that part of your obligation and privilege as a member of the church is to get to know other believers and to make yourself known to them. He's not done. He writes, study God's Word together. Learn to think as a church about God's Word. He's not talking about go to a place and get brainwashed. What he's saying is, what he's implying is, if it's being accurately, properly interpreted and taught, then we should all, as the years go by, more and more, we start thinking like the Bible thinks. And we should become more and more unified with that. He completes it this way. Here's I'm going to come to the, his conclusion of this quote. Study God's Word together. Learn to think as a church about God's Word. You should be growing in grace yourself. And in the knowledge of God's word, in the knowledge of your own heart, and of the hearts of your brothers and sisters, and in the awareness of the opportunities God is putting in front of your church, can you say that I am growing in grace, I'm growing in my knowledge of God and his word, I'm growing in a greater knowledge of my own heart, I'm learning the hearts of my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I'm more and more aware of the opportunities that are being put out there in my church, and I'm getting in the flow of it because... 
they're the right ones. If they're not the right ones, you need to get a different church. But if they're the right ones, I'm getting in the flow of that, and I'm going to be part of that. So Christ is calling for certain responsibilities and requirements to be placed on the congregation. You need to be listening and refuting and recognizing false teaching. You're involved in church discipline. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says that when a brother or sister falls into sin, we don't just ignore them. You don't just, hey, pastor. No, you go to them and you help them in a spirit of of gentleness and meekness. You bring them back toward the Lord, realizing that could be me. And so we're all involved in church discipline. Number two, church leadership requires spiritual gifting. So we're talking about spiritual. Church leadership. What does the Bible have to say about it? Well, first of all, secondly, church leadership requires spiritual gifting. So you're in Corinthians. Would you flip just a few pages over to Ephesians chapter 4? Would you join me there? Ephesians 4. Everybody going there? Ephesians 4. And I'm going to string it together with a couple of other Brief passages as well. We'll spend the longest time on this one. Ephesians 4. In a moment, you're going to see a verse on the screen, but I'm going to actually, it's not on the screen. Go back, if you would, look at verse 8. Paul tells the Ephesian church, Therefore, it says, quote, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. When he ascended on high, when Christ ascended on high, he led a host of captives. In other words, frees a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So what does that mean? It means he gave gifts to the church. He gave gifts to people, individuals, and to the church. What are these gifts that he gives? So I made a statement last week that this last week's message, nor the next two, are not easy for me to teach and preach because of the way they can sound. And that's why I'm very thankful that I've not preached this on a Sunday morning until almost seven years in. But I'm going to go with what the Bible says because we need to know what the Bible says. Church leadership requires spiritual gifting. So Jesus ascended and he gave gifts. What are some of the gifts? Look at verse 11. And he gave the apostles. The apostles were a gift to the church. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. The shepherds and teachers, that group, that last two are together. The shepherd teachers, the pastor shepherd teachers is the idea. He gave gifts and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. I'm going to pause there. Hey, those are in the new member class. Pay attention here because it will save us time next week. This is where we actually start. Literally, this is the text. We'll start next week. Years ago, in some translations, there was a comma in verse 12 that used to be there. And if you put a comma here, it totally changes the meaning of the sentence. I'm going to place the comma this time. Let's put it in our mind, wrongly, but just so we see, if we wrongly put a comma after the word saints in verse 12, watch how it changes the meaning. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor teachers. Why? If you put a comma there, it sounds like a list of three things. He gave them to the church, number one, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. You see that? Why did he give these people? So that they can, you know, build up the saints and so they can do the work of the ministry. So the people that he gave, they'd be doing the work of the ministry and then... 
again, building up the body and to, to equip the saints, build up the body, and so they could do the work of the ministry. It sounds like the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor, teacher, shepherds, they're the ones who are supposed to do all the work of the ministry. Thankfully, that is not the teaching of the text, and that comma is not there. So here's what the text is actually saying. He gave these people to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. To what level? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. In other words, God gave these people certain gifts and gave them to the church, not so that they will do everything, but so that they will equip and train the saints to go do the work of the ministry and to build up the body. The whole church is to build itself up. And if you think that's not the proper interpretation, I challenge you to go home and read verses 14, 15, 16, and you'll see how that all of us are connected to Christ. And when the whole body is doing its proper function, then the whole body is being built up more and more. Leave Ephesians. Go backward if you would. Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. Church leadership requires spiritual gifting. Romans chapter 12. Look at verse 6. Having gifts, having gifts. He's implying all Christians have gifts, spiritual gifts. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Grace means gift. God has given out the gifts at his disposal, at his discretion. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If you're a Christian this morning, you should hear that. I have spiritual, a spiritual gift or spiritual gifts. What are they? Here's a list, not an exhaustive list, but I believe this is the primary list, my opinion. I think Romans 12 is the primary list. You should probably find yourself somewhere in Romans 12 this morning. If I were to come up to you after, the church, after church this morning and say, hey, what's your spiritual gift? Which one of these do you think describes you the most? Verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, prophecy the idea of preaching. Is that your gift? If service in our serving, if you have the gift of service, then use that gift in your serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts, like challenges and encourages and inspires. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. Now, dear, use your spiritual gift in your exhortation. The one who contributes, who's a giver. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads. Hey, come on, let's go here. Let's... They go, they lead. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy. Man, they just have a gift to do acts of mercy. Do it with cheerfulness. So there's spiritual gifts that are involved in, in church leadership. Leave, leave that if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And then we're going to take a string of notes. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So Ephesians, he gave gifts. To these people, their job is to equip the saints so that the saints do the work of the ministry. We saw a sample but probably primary list of spiritual gifts. Now look at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. God has given spiritual gifts for the common good for all the rest of the body of Christ. And here Paul gives the Corinthians a list. For to one is given through the, Spirit, uh, through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. Man, they're just wise. They know how to take truth and apply it. 
To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. They can speak various languages. To another, the interpretation of tongues. Now notice verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Would you write these thoughts down? Church leadership in the church requires spirit, spiritual gifts. Thought number one there, bullet points coming fast. Leadership in the church is determined by God, but is discerned and recognized by the congregation. Leadership in the church That is determined by God. God has determined who are going to be. Remember I said he's the chief shepherd. So if he's the chief shepherd, there's an implication there that there may be other under shepherds, not chief shepherds. Shepherds working under the chief shepherd. And so first thought here, leadership in the church is determined by God because he gives spiritual gifts But they should be recognizable to the congregation. If the spiritual gifts are not recognizable by the congregation, then that person or persons should not be put in those positions. Number two, what we learn. In these three passages, we learn God gives grace gifting at his discretion. As he sees fit, I'm going to give that person this gift. I'm going to give that person this spiritual blend of gifts. God has determined Grace gifting is at his discretion. I also want to say this. It's very important. If you look at that list or the one in 1 Corinthians and you say, I think this is mine. I wish that was mine. How come they have that gift or that one or that one and I only have, I don't like the one I've got. Or they have two or three and I only have one. We are not to be disgruntled and discontent. Why? Because, write it down, gifting, spiritual gifting does not determine our value as a Christian. You're not less valuable if your gift is that of teaching. You're not less valuable if your gift is that of prophesying. God has given you the gifts he wants you to have. And by the way, our eternal rewards are not based on our spiritual gifts. Help me out right quick. Our spiritual gifts do not determine our eternal reward. I'm not talking about getting to heaven. I'm talking about Rewards. Christ talks about reward. What will our rewards be based on? Our what? Faithfulness. What did you do with the gifting God has given you? If all you do is like, I don't like my gift set. I'm not going to use it. I don't want to do that. Okay? Well, you're forfeiting rewards. And then lastly, thought from here. Spiritual gifts are for edifying the body of Christ. And we'll know that there is a spiritual gift evident when the Holy Spirit actually empowers that gift in a person to build up and edify the body. Can I say it this way? Man, have you noticed so-and-so? I think they have the gift of mercy. Man, when they they do certain things, it just really helps the downtrodden. They really encourage them. They do it with, with such cheerfulness. They don't just like wallow in misery with the person. They just have a whole way of doing it. Man, they have a real gift. Have you ever noticed when that person contributes, it really advances the kingdom? Have you ever noticed when that person serves, man, they just really, like, things happen. They just have the gift in, like, serving. Man, when that person leads, people want to get behind them. When that person exhorts, it inspires us. Man, I want to go live for Jesus. I want to to conquer the world. That person's just got a gift about, okay, yeah, that's how you'll know. It's edifying and building up 
the body. Leave 1 Corinthians, if you would. Join me. 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, chapter 3. I want us to just quickly, it'll be a quick hitter. 1 Timothy, chapter 3, because we're talking about church leadership requires spiritual gifting. 1 Timothy, chapter 3, look at verse 1. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. Paul is writing to a young protege, probably around 30 years old, a man that Paul has trained for probably 10 or 11 years at this point. He's left Timothy in the city of Ephesus to kind of be like a lead pastor in this church, in this city, and Paul's gone on, but he knows he's trained Timothy correctly. Watch what Paul tells Timothy. Timothy, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. I grew up with only the King James. And one of the things I noted when I read that a few years ago is that in the King James, it read something like this. If a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. It had the word desires twice. Actually, this is even more accurate than that. Notice what it writes. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. Hang on here. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, the King James uses the word bishop. If anyone aspires, goes after the office of overseer, bishop, it's because he, desire, he has a desire for a good task. One of the things that I've noticed is if there's a man who has a certain gift set that God decided to give them, and they have a certain calling on their life, you give it time. That desire in them, certain people, is to... They just want to help shepherd the people of God. They, they want to help... like. Lead the people of God in following the Lord and fulfilling the Great Commission and and serving Christ. They want to like teach people the Word of God and teach them about the Lord. They want to shepherd. They want to lead. They they want to teach. Somebody may ask me like, hey, how'd you get called to preach? What is called to preach? What does that mean? Was there like a a light in the sky? did Did the angelic choir start singing? I would say, this is not exhaustive, but I would say the first thing, the first thing is, do you want to do it? Do you want to do it? I believe that a desire is not the end of the call, but it's probably the first sign of a call. I want to do this. Would you write this down? Aspires means they're going to go after it because the desire, it shows that a man with a certain gifting, certain calling has a desire, who has a desire to shepherd and lead and teach God's people. It may be very uncomfortable. It may not be comfortable. And I put that in there from personal experience. It's not comfortable for me because most of y'all know, most of y'all know this. One of my two greatest fears in the world is public speaking. But when this call and by God's design, his gifting is put on you, it's like this desire will override that so that eventually that desire will manifest itself in that person like going after that office and after that task. It will move him to make that a reality in his life. He doesn't ask for it. And by the way, I'm sure there's some people in 
in ministry, and rightly so, that are there that wanted it and maybe asked the Lord for it, and it was God's will. And I know, I'm sure, there are people that are doing ministry that weren't really called by God, but there are others that, like, that was not their plan. It's not what they would necessarily have chosen for themselves. But God chose this, and God put, it was brought to them, it was put upon them, and give it time, and they accept that. And they move toward it as a reality. They, they eventually aspire to it because the desire has been put there by God. Now, I want you to, after you've written that, I want you to hang with me in 1 Timothy just for a moment, and then we'll get to our third point. We'll start it today. Do you have, so as you have your Bible open and not just relying on the screen, you, you have an advantage if you notice some like paragraph breaks, Right? Do you see in your Bible some paragraph breaks? So there's a break after verse 7, and then verse 8 to 13 starts another section, right? So check this out. Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's going to go through two things. Versus, so just saying, if a man desires the office of bishop or overseer, he desires, if he aspires to that, it's because he desires a good task. Then he's going to describe the qualifications of the bishop overseer. He's going to describe, and there's a long list there. But over in verse 8, down to verse 13, he switches over and says, these are the qualifications for deacons. So I'm not going to take time to read it, but I'm going to point this out because it is important. If we were to just take the two lists and realize there's slightly different wording, but take the gist out of both lists, hey, if somebody wants to be a deacon in the church, guess what? There's qualifications. If someone wants to be an overseer or bishop in the church, there's qualifications, and these are that, and over here is for the deacons. If you were to look at the two lists and think through, you'd say, wow, okay, wow, they have to have dignity and dignified, got to be sober, serious-minded. They have to have an understanding of the Word of God. They have to run and organize their household a certain way. They're not to be brand-new Christians in neither category. have to have a good reputation for people out there. Their marital status and faithfulness comes into play in the descriptions. The lists are basically the same. With one difference. What is the one difference? Some of you know the difference. The bishop, overseer, is required to be able to what? It's the one difference. He's is required to be able to what? Teach. Teach. Everything else is about the same. This one, here's what that means. A deacon can meet all the qualifications and be able to teach. Have the gift, spiritual gift of teaching and be a deacon. A deacon may start as a deacon and have the gift of teaching, and it may become clear that he's supposed to be an elder, or a pastor, bishop, overseer. But he doesn't have to have the gift of teaching to be able to be a deacon. So he can have it or not. But to be in this other category, you have to have this. You say, well, wait a minute. What is the gift of teaching? The gift of teaching is this. It's the ability when you read the Word of God to like understand what it's saying, to like properly interpret it. But that's not all. It's to organize those in proper order and thoughts and then to explain it in a way that when people hear it, they go like, I now understand what that passage says. We had that happen just yesterday. Dexter made that comment. You remember saying that at some point yesterday? The gift of teaching, again, it's the ability to... God does this. 
It's not that they're like anything of themselves. It's like God gives this person an ability to understand it, properly interpret it, organize it, explain it. And what should happen is people will be like, I actually can understand that. Makes sense. To be in this category, you have to have it. A deacon doesn't have to have it. Here's what that means. No one should ever think, wow, this person's been a deacon, and so they've gotten older and older. They're automatically going to be moved over to this category. No. You have to have, have, to have that as a qualification. Spir- scripture calls for leadership with spiritual gifting that is God's designing. So it's not just a graduation effect. Let's write a couple of notes. The Bible's qualification, did we already write that one? Yes, you wrote that. Good. It's not required the gift of teaching is not required for deacons. All right, has that been up for a moment? I wasn't paying attention. We good to move on? Number three. So we've noticed God gives the congregation certain expectations, requirements. Spiritual leadership in the church requires spiritual gifting that's determined by God and it's used to build up. It's, it's, again, it's his choice. You don't just like, hey, I'm standing over in the line for teaching. I'm standing, what you doing? I'm waiting on prophecy. Working my way up to the front. Like, what you doing? I want to be, I want the gift of contributing and giving because apparently that means I'm going to have some resources. I want to have plenty to give away. So, oh, that's smart. That's a good one to have. I'm like, anyway, why'd I say that? Move on. Number three. That's a good gift. That's a great gift. Number three. Let's just start it today. Scripture calls for leadership by elders. The Bible calls, so we're talking about leadership in the church, church, the Lord Jesus Christ is the final authority. But under that, scripture calls, and the congregation has a responsibility, but scripture calls for leadership by elders. Would you join me in Acts chapter 20? Two very important passages, we'll see them this week and next, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, very important. It's the end of the third missionary journey. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. Again, it's the end of the third missionary journey. He's already done the first, done the second. It's the end of the third missionary journey. He's heading back to Jerusalem. He wants to get there in time for Pentecost. I don't know why. I don't know why. Hey, Paul, why is that so important? I don't know. It's not like you have to offer sacrifices. Jesus died on the cross. But for some reason, he wants to get back to Pentecost in time for Pentecost. So he's going, he's in a boat, and he's, he's sailing, some on land and some on boat, and he's getting ready to go by Ephesus. And he hadn't been there just too recently, but he had just spent three years there. And man, he's got deep roots there, and he loves those people, and those people love him. And he knows if I stop there, man, I'm not going to make it to Pentecost back in Jerusalem. So watch what he does in verse 17. Acts 20, verse 17, now from Miletus, that's where Paul is, he sent to Ephesus, And called the elders of the church, meaning the elders of the church in in Ephesus, to come to him. Hey, you guys come over here to me. So in essence, this is like the second pastor's conference in in the history of the church. Hey, I can't come there. Y'all join me over here. So now there's elders conference. And I'm not going to read from verse 18 down to 28. But would you jump in your Bible to verse 28? Look at it. Paul, talking to the elders, says, pay, hey, elders, pay careful attention to yourselves. A main charge, you pay special careful attention to yourself. Don't you let yourself get out of bounds. You got to keep you reined in. Your first ministry is keeping yourself out of trouble. 
And that's going to be hard. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which you decided to know. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Wait, who, who are overseers? First Timothy, he says, if anybody aspires for the office of overseer, bishop... Now we know that he's talking to elders and saying the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Look at 28 again. Pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. It's not your church. It's God's church which he obtained with his own blood, meaning Jesus' blood, meaning Jesus is God. The church is Jesus's, and you're just helping do that. But he, the Holy Spirit made the decision. If you're an elder, you've been placed as an overseer, so do it. But first, make sure you keep yourself in line. you got your hands full. You first and be looking out over the flock of God. First Timothy, would you go back there? Think one more time. First Timothy chapter 5. Very important text. Again, you'll see it again next week. This one's so, it's small. Very important. First Timothy 5. So I'm trying to defend, and we'll see this more next week. Scripture calls for leadership by elders as under, people under Christ. First Timothy 5, look at verse 17. Let the elders who rule well. Wait, what does that mean? That tells me something. God has made a rule and a law, and in his design of church leadership, elders have rule, have some level of rule, again, under him and under the word of God. But let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Apparently, some can serve and rule, and some can rule well. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. They like labor in their teaching and their preaching, especially that group. So if y'all give me a moment, I want to share what I've learned years ago when this stuff, and particularly what we'll see more in Acts next week, just started jumping off the page at me. I started having these conversations with people here in our county and in my circles. So I told you earlier, in my youth, I was in two churches primarily. Then I was in a church in Bible college and in two churches after that before I was here. And none of those were things done, praise the Lord, like they are done here. I hadn't seen this. Was, it was in place here before I got here. But I would read this, and I would study my Bible, and I'm like, and I'd have these conversations, and I'd start talking about elders, and people would kind of, oh, yeah, and, yeah, and they'd nod, and they'd kind of agree a little bit, and seem like agreement, and the problem was, the more that we talked, it became very apparent we're using the same word, elders, but we're talking about two very different things. In fact, I can't say this for sure. I didn't look it up because I don't know the answer. I don't know how many churches are in Anderson County. We're in South Carolina, right? I have a hunch that... One denomination in our county is the largest. What would you guess that is? The Baptist. Would y'all kind of agree with me? I don't know this for a fact. I'm going to say a hunch. If you put all the other churches from all the other denomination of churches in our county, I believe that the Baptist churches would outrank in number all the other. That's my hunch. Y'all think that's probably accurate. I think that's really accurate. That means... You know, the Pentecostal or the Holiness or the Methodist or the Presbyterian, I, I would dare say all of them would not. You say, what, what's your point? 
We're in a county that's dominated by Baptist churches, but I think if you were to go around, and I've been in a few, and bring in even the Pentecostal churches, the holiness churches, and maybe some others, certainly Catholic churches wouldn't have this. You start talking about elders, they do not have in their terminology an office of elders that's ever talked about in the course of a month. You will not hear that terminology. Words matter. Words mean things. Words stand for things. Terminology matters. I dare say that the idea of elders, I know it's used at least 15 times in the New Testament, not just talking about the older men in Israel, but talking about specific, a specific office that has been given leadership, a measure of leadership from Christ in the New Testament, at least 15 times. And I'm, I'm thinking that's more than other terms that are used for this position. And so I would be talking with people about elders, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. We get to talking, and like, no, we're talking about something very different. And the reason is we're influenced by our church background. Again, I went to churches I didn't have anywhere in the normal use of a year. We wouldn't talk about the office of elders. You'll get his quote in a moment. I'm going to start it first. I'm going to borrow from Alexander Strzok. See if this is you even, perhaps. Strzok writes the following, quote, When most people hear of church elders, he's going to give a list of about eight or nine things, what they think. When most people hear of church elders, they think of an official church board, lay officials, influential people within the local church. That's what they think of. Can I insert me right here? What does he mean by influential people? I think this is what he means. That's people, that's the movers and shakers. It's the big dogs. They got the right last name. You know what I'm saying? You ever felt that? You ever felt that in a church? They got the right last name because they go by their last name is that person's last name is that person's last name. And that person and the church was built on great-great-grandpa's property. And so great-great-grandpa was there when the first stone was laid and he owned the property. And so naturally, four generations later, this person's an elder because he got the right last name. Or maybe he's got deep pockets. Deep pockets. Surely he's going to be an elder. He's rich. Is that really the, what the Bible describes? He writes, when most people hear of church elders, they think of an official church board, lay officials, influential people within the church, or advisors to the pastor. That's what they are. They're the advisors to the pastor. He continues, they think of elders as policymakers, financial officers, fundraisers, administrators. Can I kind of tell you, I'm going to insert my word most people in our county, if they were to think of this idea of elders in the church, they have a mindset of, oh, you mean the trustees? You're talking about the guys that when the church was first started? Or you mean the old guys that nobody knows who they are? If you're going to have a contract, their names have to be on the contract or the agreement or the land proposal? Those guys, I don't know who they are. And that's what people think of when they think of, oh, that, that's the church elders. I don't know. Do we have church trustees? Yeah, that's the trustees. That's not it. Strzok continues, and you'll write this in just a moment. He says, when they think of them, the average person, they don't expect church elders to teach the word or to be involved pastorally in the lives of people because they have this advisors to the pastor mentality, these fundraisers, these administrators, these contract handlers, these trustees mentality. Is that, uh, did I have a note like that somewhere? What's that next note? We'll go, yep, yeah, Strzok writes the following. 
most people think of elders as that list. And they don't expect church elders to teach the Bible or to be involved pastorally. That's a major misunderstanding. As you're writing that, I'm going to continue. Strzok writes, such a view as what you're writing there, this distorted view. He says, such a view, however, not only lacks scriptural support, but flatly contradicts the New Testament scriptures. This idea that all the other policymakers, financial officers, they're the fundraisers, they're the advisors to the pastor, they're the trustees. Not only is that not in the New Testament, if they don't teach the Word of God and get involved in people's lives pastorally, then it's actually against what the New Testament teaches. He writes, it flatly contradicts the New Testament Scriptures. Again, as you're writing, I, I trust you could do two things at once. Quote, according to the New Testament concept, concept of eldership, elders lead the church, teach and preach the Word, protect the church from false teachers, exhort and admonish the saints in sound doctrine, visit the sick and pray and judge doctrinal issues. In biblical terminology, elders shepherd, oversee, lead, and care for the local church. In a lot of churches, those that actually use the term, a lot of times they don't do any of those things. They just meet like once a month, maybe once a quarter, if there's business to talk about. And so what I'm describing, Grace View, certainly what elders do for two or three hours once a month in a meeting, that's important. That is important. But it's not more important than who they are all the time. It's not more important than what they do every Sunday, every Wednesday. Again, that meeting, it's great. But it's not as important as who they are all the time and what they're doing all the time. Their, their position is so important that as we hinted at last week, Paul alludes that just their private time with God is so important because of their position of leadership that their private prayer and study, their private time with God is actually time that is really serving the body because if they get off, man, they can have a really negative influence and go in and start making decisions without the leading of the Lord and being in right fellowship and being grounded and educated in His Word in a fresh new way. If you have just a board policy, if you have a board mentality, that's the secret hidden board, then that role is only important when they meet for those two hours and make policy. Other than that, yep, nobody knows who they are. They don't really have any involvement with the congregation. That's not what the New Testament calls for. So I think I'm going to hit this next thought, and I'm going to finish at the top of my next page, and that's, I think that's where we'll call it quits for this morning. Would you write the following down? The New Testament uses three different titles. The New Testament uses three different titles, and it's actually being used for the same people. Again, I'm going back, not all translations. I'm going to go back to what I grew up on, the, the King James uses this word. So kind of get these three words in your mind as you're reading your Bible. I'm going to try to make a point about these three terms. There's this idea of bishop. ESV calls it overseer, which is right on the money. There's this idea of elders and this idea of pastor shepherds, pastor teacher shepherds. 
The New Testament uses these three terms. So here's the key thing I want you to go home with this morning. These are not three different terms talking about three different categories of people. These are three terms talking about the same persons. Three terms, same people. And not this morning, but next week, Lord willing, we'll look at why are there three terms if it's the same people. I think it has to do with describing their function. This term highlights that function, and that term highlights that one, and the third one, this other function. It's like there's certain things they do, and a term, a special terminology goes with that. Let me give you a, a wrong understanding. Here's a wrong way to look at it. Some people's idea of the word bishop, here's what they think. Bishop, oh, the bishop, he's over like lots of churches. He's over like a whole region of churches. The bishop is. He's really high. Then what are elders? Well, elders are those guys that sign contracts and stuff. Remember, they're the trustees. They're the old guys. Nobody really knows who they are. They're kind of hidden. When what are the pastors? Oh, the pastors, they're the people that we pay to do all the work of the church. What? None of that is proper thinking. Would you write this down? These words all point to the same men, who they are, what they do. Particularly if we were to single out the idea of elders. Elders are to be seasoned men, not brand new Christians, seasoned men with a proven walk with God and to have a call on their life by God that is so recognizable, clearly recognizable, that a congregation of people somewhere asks this person to serve in the capacity as their elder, bishop, pastor. Hey, we've noticed a call on your life and a gifting, and would you serve in that capacity here because God has done that and we recognize it? If you don't recognize it, then don't ask them to fill that role. Terms. Three terms, same people. I'm almost done. I'm going to hit that next little thing, and that's where we'll stop. That, I think the little five Just before that, can I share this? Elder, pastor, bishops, they're not to be new to the faith. They're not to be new Christians. That's clear in 1 Timothy and Titus. Not brand new Christians. Can I share this, though? Please hear what I'm about to say. It's very important. Please hear this. The church, a local church, conducts business. A church conducts business. But a church is not a business. It conducts business, but it is not a business. And so for that reason, a man's intellect and talent and business acumen are not requirements to be an elder pastor bishop. Just not requirements. Well, no, man, we need to get all the smartest people and those who have the best business sense and they've made a success of themselves, and then the talented and the charismatic, man, everybody just likes to just see them and hear them like, man, they, we need a charismatic person that's really, really smart and good at business and talented, and that's who we should make. Sounds great. Those are all awesome qualities. I wish I had them all, but that's just not how they're chosen. The church is not a business. So I leave you with this thought. These three titles, these people, we, we heard what the congregation is called to do. What are they called to do? Let's finish here. Number one. Though different titles are used, each elder, pastor, bishop. So can I, 
insert this, at Graceview, our pastors are elders, and our elders are pastors. Let me say it again. At Graceview, our pastors are elders. That's why when we hired Mike and Brandon, we didn't rush because they're elders. And our elders are pastors. You say, well, Danny and Don aren't on the payroll. They're still pastors. You don't have to be on a payroll. Some are paid and some are not. That varies among churches. Here, our pastors are elders and elders are pastors. You say, why do you do that? Because that's what the Bible describes. Sorry, just to be so blunt, but that's the truth. Write these five things. What are these people, what are they supposed to do? Number one, they're called to protect the church from perceived spiritual danger. They're to protect the church from spiritual danger. It's their job. Be on the lookout. Uh-oh, going to have to deal with that. Number two, they're to give oversight of the church. To give oversight of the church. That's that, what we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If a man aspires to that, it's because he desires a good task, he desires and aspires to be an overseer. So they kind of take oversight, not domineering, as we'll hear next week. Number three, they are to model the Christian life. They're to model the Christian life. Let me add this, very imperfectly. They are to model it, but at best, they will model it imperfectly. Going to mess up. Appreciated yesterday at our men's prayer breakfast as Danny shared his testimony and he's like hey I struggle same as you and this and here's some things the Lord's shown me and I sure struggle with a lot of things they're called to model the Christian life though far from perfect number four they're called to know and to shepherd the flock of God to know the flock of God shepherd the flock of God that's that idea it's going to come into play of pastor pastor shepherd know the people and then the last one to feed the flock of God the word of God and that's that concept of teaching Teaching is primary and key in all of those things. How can you protect from perceived spiritual danger if you don't know what it is? So you need to be able to interpret and, and organize and explain. How can you give oversight if you don't know what the Bible teaches? How can you model a Christian life if you don't know what we're supposed to do or not do? And to shepherd and to know the people of God and to feed the flock the Word of God. I, I told you our ending would be very blunt. And it has come that time. Come back next week, take that, fold it up, put it in your Bible, and use that same one next week, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I know that this is different, very different, just all teaching basically this morning. And I pray, God, that, uh, that we would really deepen our understanding of why we do what we do. It is very different, Lord. Uh, I thank you for, Deanna alluded to this earlier, we are not a cookie-cutter church Lord, we want to be intentional and we want to be, be right. We want to be what you want us to be. Lord, I pray that where we're out of bounds, I'm sure there are areas right now where we just have not yet seen a clear understanding where we're out of balance and where that is. Assuming that is the case, I pray, Lord, that you would give us insight and light. Lord, let us always be pursuing you and your truth and doing things decently and in order in a way that pleases you. Father, I pray that we would all recognize our spiritual gifts, 
give thanks to you for them and ask you to empower our individual unique spiritual gifts in a way that edifies this body and builds it up to the glory of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. See you tonight. See you tonight.